Yo, 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 yo. What's up, everybody? Uh, this is your boy, Patrick Pido, and I decided to start my own MMA podcast called Pat Padge's Body Shot Podcast. Sorry, Body Shot. Pat Padge's MMA Podcast. Um, just to give you a little bit of introdu- introduction on myself, I'm a amateur MMA fighter based out of Calgary. I've been training martial arts my whole life since I was about seven years old. You know, I was doing karate. Then after that, I did taekwondo. Also did a lot of wrestling in high school and university and did about one year of university wrestling. And just recently, over the last three years, I really picked up on training jujitsu and boxing and kickboxing. And now I've actually competed in my own amateur MMA fight. And the reason why I'm doing this podcast is I love talking about combat sports because the more I talk about it, the funner it is to me. And I also like thinking that it's going to help me out with my own training by trying to explain why some fighters win fights and why other fighters lose and understanding the complex dynamics that happen in a fight. And I also know that there are a lot of people that like combat sports and hopefully I can help other people appreciate and love the sport more. And also Gary Vee said, you got to be putting out a podcast to build your own personal brand and yeah, I am. So uh, what I wanted to do was just go over a couple of news, uh, pieces of news that happened in the MMA world recently. And I'm going to go through a lot of a lot of different fights that happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, what I want to do is that on a weekly basis, I want to go over the UFC card, a Bellator card, a Glory card, or anything that's happening in the combat world. And just kind of give my thoughts on what happened that night. But <clears throat> there isn't any fights that are happening this week that I can think of. So I'm just going over the last couple of weeks that we ha- did have fights, including the UFC fight night with Korean Zombie versus Frankie Edgar, the Bellator event, Bellator 238, as well as Glory, Collision 2, and the Gervonta Davis fight that happened uh, the last couple of weeks. But starting with the news, um, Calvin Ka- uh, Calvin Katar, or Calvin Katar, whatever you say, is booked to fight Jeremy Stevens now. This is a good fight because Jeremy Stevens is one of those featherweight gatekeepers. You know, he's one of those fighters that you have to adapt to avoid his strength or else you're going to have a really long day when you're fighting him. But he always does struggle against, you know, those top five guys who build a game plan around him. And then there's Calvin Guitar, who's also, you know, top 10, top 15, better and out and working his jab and trying to land that right hand. So it'll be interesting to see how this fight goes. Another big piece of news is Tarek Safedine was released from the UFC back in November. Now, if you remember Tarek Safedine, he was that Belgian kickboxer, MMA fighter who won the strike force welterweight way back in the day against Nate Markweight. And then he came to the UFC and had that amazing fight against that giant fighter, Hyung Byung. Uh, Hyung Jim Lim. But then after that fight, you know, he put on a really dominant performance showing off those beautiful leg kicks of his. But then he ended up going one and four after that, losing the guys like Rory Mack and RDA and Rick Story. <clears throat> the kind of fighters that do really well against kickers and makes those type and makes the lives of kickers like Terry Safdine's really, really hard. I actually kind of forgotten about Safdine. He had left my mind since he hasn't fought since 2017. But yeah, I don't know I don't the know. reason why he got caught. Uh, maybe it's contract negotiations or maybe he's been injured or maybe he just kind of like um lost his motivation to compete but you know still he was a great fighter and it's sad to see him go if he decides to call it a career and then it was announced that gilbert burns was gilbert burns versus maya damian maya is in the works which is awesome because you know you got gilbert burns who's a banger on the feet but an amazing one of the best jiu-jitsu players in mma right now as Facing, you know, basically the best jiu-jitsu player to come to MMA, you know, Damian Maya, maybe Jacques Ray Souza. Those two guys are the best to ever, uh, you know, utilize jiu-jitsu inside of MMA. And it's going to, it looks like it's going to be a fun fight. You know, Burns has fought at lightweight, but he was massive for that weight class. 
And I think he'll find a decent home at welterweight. He's already had a fight at welterweight, and he did pretty well. I think it was against Gunnar Nelson, which he won. He doesn't seem to be afraid of anyone. He's constantly calling people out, and he's always looking for a fight, like, at any weight class. He's, he's always making tweets, like, saying, like, he'll even fight people at middleweight and light heavyweight which is awesome. And I like this guy. I can't wait to see how this fight goes down. And, you know, it's also good for Maya. It's kind of a step down in the competition that he's been facing recently. You know, a lot of the fights yeah. that he's been, he's been taking against top, the crop, you know, top of the line type kind of guys like Usman, Woodley, Kobe Covington. He just uh, seems that, you know, maybe, you know, the top of the crop type of guy, even though he did had a, he had a really good performance against Jorge Masvidal, even though it wasn't one-sided or anything like that. Uh, I think because he's also getting a little bit older, it's going to be good for him to take on those guys who are trying to get into the top 10 of those divisions. And finally, Edson Barbosa said that he's going to be dropping down to featherweight, which is surprising as hell because... To me, that's just ridiculous to think about because I've always remembered Barbosa being one of the bigger lightweights in the lightweight division. Like, every time he steps into the octagon, he's so ripped. And he looks massive. Like, uh, oh, what's that fighter's name? Oh, Glayson Tebow. He's not Glayson Tebow big, but he's always, he's never looking like he's dwarfed in size or anything like that. And he's so ripped that that it looks like there's not that much fat for him to burn to make it to a lower late. But, of course, you know, we thought the same thing about Jose Aldo. And when he moved down to Banway, he looked really good. And in his fight against Marias, or Marias, however you want to say it. So, so hopefully he can find a, you know, really good nutritionist and a trainer and get him down to that way safely. So he doesn't die trying to make that way cut. So that's the news that I picked up from this week. And I just wanted to go over the fights that happened over the week, uh, over the last couple of weeks before the holidays and after the, yeah, just like right before the holidays. And just go over what I thought was interesting and some of the bigger name fights. So starting off with USC Fight Night 165, Korean Zombie versus Frankie Edgar. We had the Korean Zombie, who was a wild-ass fighter, who was, you know, one of the more entertaining fighters, always looking for a knockout, coming from the WEC. You know, in the WEC, he wasn't too special. He was the type of guy who would take one to give one. But then he ended up getting knocked out by George Roop in one of his fights. And after that, he started He's making great, great, great big, big leaps in his boxing. He joins the UC and goes on a bender, beating people like Mark Hominick and Dustin Poirier, and eventually earning a title shot at Aldo. And he ends up losing to Aldo, but it's a respectable loss. It's not like a blowout or anything like that. He actually gives a good account of himself. But he ends up getting injured in that fight where Aldo and the zombie are fight, uh, throwing at each other and a weird left left hand cranks uh, the Korean zombie's shoulder and he sits out two, He sits out for two years because of the injury. And then after that, he had to also do two years of military service out in Korea. So, you know, he's gone from the sport for four years and ring rust is a very real thing. But he comes back to face a very respectful fighter, Dennis Bermudez, who is also the strongest wrestler that the Korean zombie has ever faced and knocks him out in the first round. Then he goes on to fight, uh, you know, the fed, everybody's favorite striker in the featherweight division, Yair Rodriguez. And he basically boxes up Yair for the majority of the fight. You know, he's leading the scorecard and, every, you know, general public had him leading up in all the scorecards coming up since the last round. But then he, you know, gets sucked up into a dumbass decision where Yair Rodriguez you know, does the Max Holloway thing where he's like, hey, we'll throw down for the last 10 seconds and runs up into probably the craziest, one of the craziest knockouts you'll ever see with the back elbow counter. Comes back and then he faces Renato uh, Moicano, who is a very respectable fighter in the featherweight division. Moicano is a savage. I really like this guy. And it takes Korean Zombie less than a minute to knock him out. Then he gets the chance to face, you know, Frankie Edgar, who for the longest time has either been the champ of the division or in the top five or whatever division he's been fighting in. And if you don't know Frankie Edgar, he's basically the textbook MMA fighter. If you're a coach and you're trying to mold your students, you're showing footage of Edgar. Edgar's a savage because even though he's naturally a strong wrestler, it's the way that he mixes his striking in with his wrestling that makes him such a threat. 
against such fantastic fighters. You know how to strike well and just he knows how to he knows how to strike well enough and just enough so people start throwing back at him and opening their hips up for the takedown because when you start squaring up, that's when your hips are open and more susceptible to the takedown. So Frankie Edgar very good at getting people to start uh, getting into exchange with him just enough that they forget that they're in a MMA fight they think it's a kickboxing match and then he shoots for a takedown. It sounds simple, but it's really really hard to get the timing down and gain like the courage to be able to you know throw down with people like uh, Jose Aldo and Max Holloway trying to shoot for the takedown. And Edgar is a master of this type of sports psychology MMA psychology but unfortunately for Edgar he got smoked by the Korean zombie and although Edgar is an amazing all-around fighter one thing to know is that he's not as good as a fighter going forward as he is fighting on the counter Edgar is notorious for being a slow starter and he's notoriously being clicked by hard left hooks and right uppercuts uh, just think back to the second uh, Gray Main Main Gray Maynard fight literally the first uh, punch that he uh, rocks Edgar with is the left hook um, Frankie Edgar came in right away looking for the right low kick, which is something that the Korean zombie rarely deals with. You very rarely ever see the Korean zombie try to check a low kick. But the Korean zombie did a good job of being the matador rather than the bull, staying behind his jab and waiting for Edgar's return, uh, making sure that he never committed to squaring up and throwing a power punch unless he felt like he was in position to actually nail, uh, nail Edgar when he was out of position and never committing too much so Edgar could shoot him for the easy takedown. Then, as Edgar committed to a flurry, he got clipped by a hard left hook that sent him stumbling. Something that had, you know, yeah. again, happened in the Grey Maynard fight. Then the Korean Zombie stalked Edgar, making sure that not to run into any of the easy takedowns. You know, a lot of fighters, what will happen is that they get somebody rocked, and then they'll chase the person a little too over-eagerly, and they'll open themselves up for the takedown, and then the person takes them down and stalls on the ground while they recover their wits. And then, as Edgar was stepping in to grab a clinch, you know, he stepped in with his head down. Frank, uh, the Korean zombie hit him with a classic uh, right uppercut left hook, which marked the end of the beginning of, of this fight. Sorry, mark the beginning of the end for this fight. The uppercut to hook, it's a nice combo because it plays really well into each other. If your opponent is docking a lot, uh, if your opponent is ducking a lot, the uppercut is a nice deterrent to make sure that they stand up straight. And the hook is an easy, easy mark once they're standing up straight and vice versa. If your opponent is standing up straight and you start hitting them with the hook, they start ducking to try to get away from the hook. It puts them in line for the uppercut. And just like that, the Korean zombie put himself as one of the top contenders for the featherweight title. Now, Volkanovski is out with a broken hand right now, so my thoughts are maybe, how about we get an intern belt on Korean Zombie for the Zabit? That would make a pretty interesting fight, I feel like. To me, personally, I think Zabit has a lot of holes in this game, and somebody like the Korean uh, Zombie or Max Holloway would really expose those holes, and honestly, seeing the Zombie fight even Ortega or Holloway would be an awesome, awesome fight, and I'd be fine with that. The only other interesting fight that I found on that UFC card was Alexander Uzdemir versus Alexander Rechik, or Rechik, however you want to say it. And the reason why is because Alexander Rechik was, besides Dominic Reyes, kind of the hope for the light heavyweight division to have a new prospect contend against John Jones. Because John Jones has been the kingpin of that division for since he was 23, for the longest time now. And Alexander was coming in with a little bit of hype behind him after that gnarly head kick knockout of Jimmy Manuel. But he was facing one of the all-around better fighters in the light heavy division, Uzdemir. I like Uzdemir a lot because he's not great at anything in particular. Like, he can hit hard, but... 
I like Ozemir because he's good, good, but he's, you know, he's no. not amazing at anything in particular, but he can box, he can grapple, he can wrestle, he has good takedown defense, he can clinch well, he can hit hard, and the best thing about him is that he can follow a game plan exceptionally well, and Ozemir right off the bat went looking for the right low kick in this fight because Raychix has a very side-on stance, kind of like that karate Steven Wonderboy stance, but as soon as he went for a kick, he's standing on one leg, and Raychix stepped in on Ozemir and stumbled Ozemir. And Raychik started chasing him down toward the fence. And he hopped on the guillotine, but he ended up losing the guillotine. And then from there, what the whole fight kind of came down to was Uzdemir kicking Raychik's lead leg. And Raychik kind of trying to counter Uzdemir as he stepped in with either the left hook or the overhand right. Now, the fight was good, but it wasn't that very that uh, interesting. Again, I was interested because the light heavyweight division is in dire need of new contenders and prospects. All there is left is older, you know, old heads that are fighting for the light heavyweight title. You know you have a problem in light heavyweight. There isn't that many more people that fight John Jones. You got Dominic Reyes, who is kind of the next hope to take down the kingpin. You have Corey Anderson and Jan Bohovic, who are, you know, starting to put it together. You got Volkan Ozdemir that, you know, is Great, but doesn't, doesn't seem to be championship material. And then you had Alexander Raykick, uh, who everybody was kind of tooting on being a good prospect. And Johnny Walker, obviously, you know, he fell off after getting knocked out by Corey Anderson. Everybody thought that he might be able to take down John Jones. But then it was a good fight for Raykick. Uh, you know, he never looked like he was getting blown out of the water. He was doing some nice counterfighting, but he was getting that lead leg chopped up. And it was gross watching the fight. After the first round, you see that huge, like, hematoma coming out of the leg. That bit, like, an alien is trying to jump out of his leg. Which is funny because once it started looking that bad, Ozmir kind of started letting off the leg kicks. And he started boxing more, which is, I don't know, a weird decision if you ask me. Raykick also showed that he had a terrible case of backing up straight to the fence, which Ozmir was able to walk him down to without that much trouble. So that leaves the light heavyweight division with only Dominic Reyes as someone who's going to be able to challenge John Jones, which, uh, uh, no, that's what it looks like for that division. So hopefully we'll get a new prospect sometime soon. Then there was the Bellator 238 card headlining with Fedor Emelianenko versus Rampage Jackson. I only really watched the main card. Uh, so we had Go- uh, Goiti or Goiti. Yamauchi versus Darren Crookshank. You know, I never saw, I never watched Yamauchi before this, but I've seen a lot of Darren Crookshank. You know, he was a very exciting lightweight in uh, the UFC, and I don't really know why he got cut. Like, he, you know, he was always competitive, and even though he did lose a couple fights, he never seemed like, you know, he was getting blown out of the water in particular in any of his fights, really. You know, he's good. He's a good striker, but obviously there are flaws in his game, especially in the grappling, and there isn't much to say. Yamauchi got to the back and choked him out. Then there was Lawrence Larkin versus Kita Nakamura, and out of all the Bellator fights, I remember this one being my favorite one of that night, but... I'm having tr- a lot of trouble remembering exactly what happened in this fight, which is weird. But Lawrence Larkins, he's one of my favorite welterweights outside of the UFC. And I, he was also one of my favorites in the UFC. You know, he's always been game fighting anybody. Uh, but he struggles a lot when he gets into that, you know, those top 10 welterweights. But here, he was essentially controlling everything on the feet, giving body shots, like nice body kicks and paw shotting Nakamura. Basically the whole fight. Nakamura didn't look blown out of the water either, though. He gave a good account for himself and managed to catch Larkin with a couple shots, but it was obvious that Larkin wasn't, you know, it's there's levels to this shit, so just looked like Larkin's was just in a different league than Nakamura. Then we had Michael Page versus Shinzo Anzai, and this was just a typical Michael Page fight, you know, gets Michael Page, a natural welterweight, gets matched up with a lightweight who had no business with fighting him. Michael Page can be summed up basically into counter right hands and counter flying knees, and that's all he was doing this fight. And the fight ended when he ended up catching Anzai with a counter right hand. That's basically it. 
a lot of people were roasting Big John after this fight, who was on the commentary, trying to justify that Paige doesn't just face cans. And he tried to compare Paige to Anderson Silva, which was hilarious, trying to watch him list out all the noteworthy opponents that Paige has fought. He says on one lines of, you know, you know, Paige is a lot like Anderson Silva, but people think that he's just uh, just fighting no names. He's fought a lot of good guys like Douglas Doug Lima and Paul Daly, and then he just stopped right there, which was hilarious. But another win for Paige, crushing another guy who, you know, was brought in to lose to him. Then we had Michael Chandler versus Sidney Outlaw, which was just a blowout. You know, Outlaw didn't really have a chance to get anything going. Classic Michael Chandler, though, came forward, pressure, caught Outlaw early, and then ended the, ended the fight with a really fast right straight. You know... There isn't that many more people for Chandler to fight at the lightweight division in Bellator. Maybe a rematch with Ben Henderson, but I would love to see Michael Chandler in the UFC because there isn't, you know, match him against any of the top 10 lightweights in the UFC, and I think you're going to have a really good time watching him, especially if you put him against somebody like Justin Gaethje. Finally, we had Fedor Emelianenko versus Rampage Jackson, and this was the main card, the main fight of the card, and it was just disappointing to watch which was no surprise here. You know, two old guys with Rampage coming in looking really, really, really out of shape. Like, god damn. That's what it looks like when you get paid a million dollars as a show up regardless if you win or put on a good show. Like, I don't know why Rampage gets that much money. Like, I know he's a big name, but ever since the King Mo fight, he hasn't looked that great at all. He's looked like a, you know, he just keeps on getting taken down or blasted by people. And that's what exactly what Fader did. Just came in, blasted him, and left Rampage shaking his head, signaling to the ref to stop the fight, which is disappointing, but that's what happens when you set up fights like this. You know, hopefully Fader remains retired because that's what he said, but, you know, with fighters, you know, the, if the check's big enough, they always come back. I wanted to retire because, obviously, both these fighters, the best is way past them, and... Hopefully they stay retired. Another big fight that I was really excited for was the Ricardo uh, Rico Ver Rico Verhoeven versus Badahari Two fight. So Glory Collision Two. This was an awesome fight in my opinion. If you don't know Rico Verhoeven, he's the consensus consensus ranked number one heavyweight kickboxer in the world. He's talented, athletic, and he's a damn good fighter. But the only problem is that the talent pool at heavyweight kickboxing is so terrible these days that it's hard to appreciate how good Rico is. You know the division is shallow when they have to bring in Bigfoot Silva, who is getting knocked out by guys like Frank Muir and Roy Nelson and Steven Struve, just to get knocked out by Rico Verhoeven. Badahari is, uh, so Rico was fighting Badahari, who was from kind of like that the trailing end of the golden age of heavyweight boxing, where they had a, you know, crazy lineup of amazing fighters like Sammy Schiltz, Ray Seffo, Remy Boyanski, you know, uh, Peter Ayertz, all these different types of fighters. And the story about Hari was that he just didn't have the discipline in him to keep everything together inside the ring. After he found that he could knock, yeah, after he found that they had knockout power, he was always swinging for the knockout when he was getting, uh, he was always swinging for the knockout. And then when he got hurt while uh, swinging for these knockouts, he had a hard time trying to survive. And he was tr he had trouble taking a punch. And even outside the ring, he was always getting in trouble with the law. For Hooven and Harry, they actually met already back in 2016. And the fight kind of took on a similar flow. Harry was, uh, Harry was controlling the action until a knee in the clinch from Verhoeven actually broke Harry's elbow or Harry's elbow. And they had to stop the fight. And in this fight, it was, you know, much or, uh, much less the same. Uh, Hari came out right away going for those right low kicks to the lead leg. And the first round had Rico trying to come forward as the aggressor, trying to work his own leg kicks and jab. But he ended up getting dropped by Hari's infamous right hand counter where they got into exchange with each other and the right hand dropped Rico. The second round came where Rico took his foot off the pedal and allowed Hari to play the aggressor. And Rico did a great job of doing, this, doing some of his uh, best work and giving those classic Rico looks. He was lighting Harry up with the... Uh, amazing jab is his uh, uh, amazing jab of his 
and stepping in deep to leg kick Hari's rear leg, which is pretty awesome because a lot of times kicking the lead leg is awesome, but it's so conditioned to taking damage that taking kicks onto the inside of your rear leg you know, where is very, you know, that, that area, the inside of your rear leg is very rarely ever kicked. So it's very ripe to get hit and getting hit there really, really sucks. And Rico has fought, has ended a lot of fights by kicking into that area. And the second round clearly went to Rico. And then the second round starts and Hari comes out and gives a nice right hook to the body to Rico, which drops his hands just enough to get his left high kick that dropped Rico for the second time in the fight. Rico beats the count, comes back up, and Hari tries to capitalize on it. And then he tries to catch Hari with a spinning back kick or spinning wheel kick. And he falls and he ends up injuring himself. And just like that, Hari was unable to continue because of another injury. It's kind of the same old story of Hari, you know, getting wild when he sees his opponent's hurt and he swarms and he finishes. You know, he either gets finished or he finishes. And, you know... To me, it was kind of a, I get it to heat in the moment, but that was a pretty, you know, dumb choice by Hari, I thought, anyways, to go for that spinning kick. It's also funny to note that Hari has been finished by spinning kicks multiple times before, but from other people. Being at the end of the kick rather than being the one throwing them. Uh, Stefan Leko back in the day ended him with a back kick. Peter Graham knocked him out with a rolling thunder kick. And Ruslan Karev also ended him with a spinning kick. It also leaves Rico in this odd position where... Now, the only person to really challenge him in a while has lost by injury rather than decisive stoppage by Rico twice now. And that's kind of the criticism that Rico has been getting. You know, he's beating heavyweights that really aren't on the same level as him, that shouldn't be stepping in the ring with him. And the only heavyweight that can challenge him and looks like that was on the way of beating him keeps on injuring himself. Hopefully they have a rematch in the future that settles this feud because I'm down to watch them fight again. It was a really good fight. You know, Rico wasn't blown out of the water. He was showing some looks that was troubling batter and I'd be down for a, cool, a Glory Collision 3. And finally, the last big fight that I was able to watch over the you know Christmas and happy and the New Year holidays was Javante Davis versus Yuri Orkis Gamboa. This was a really nice showing from Davis, I thought, even though he got criticized for this fight. And it really showed how tough Gamboa really is. I really like Davis because, one, I always love Southpaws. And two, you can see this guy has been spending a lot of time with Mayweather because they have so many little looks that he was giving this fight that I love. <clears throat> One thing that Davis goes to consistently is body shots, especially with his right jab. When you have a southpaw for his orthodox engagement going on, fighters have a tough time getting their jabs going because well, because of the ways that the jabs are positioned. Your least shoulders are in line with each other, meaning that you and your opponent's jabs will consistently get in the way of each other. However, going to the body is a little easier since most people are obsessed with the hand fight upstairs that a quick jab can find an easy mark to the body, especially if instead of stepping your foot to the outside of your opponent's foot, which is, you know, the hallmark strategy to get the rear power hand to land its mark when your southpaw is orthodox. By stepping on the inside, your jab has a little bit of a better angle to reach the body. Whereas Mayweather would alternate between body jabbing and then faking the body jab to go upstairs with the overhand right or left hook, Davis mainly stick Davis mainly stuck to faking the body jab to the left straight to the head. Davis was also consistently work, working the body in the first half of the fight, which ended up paying dividends because Gamboa was slowing down by the end of the fight. And Davis also looked tired, you know, the, you know, the, the end of round 8, 9, 10, and 11. And you never want to be the guy who's more tired in a fight, which is a good thing that 
Davis took the opportunity to give those body shots early on in the fight. The first knockdown of the fight was a nice sequence where the body jab had, had, had David, uh, the body jab from Davis had Gamboa lowering his guard and Dave, Davis body jab and then jabbed upstairs and got his foot on the outside of Gamboa, the classic southpaw strategy to get that major angle. And that had Gamboa turning into Davis, turning and ducking right into uh, Davis's left uppercut that put him down for the first time. Now, turning your opponent is an awesome thing to do because everyone's guards are meant to deal with attack from directly in front of them. So by taking the angle, the opponent has to pay, uh, so by taking the angle, the opponent has to play catch up by turning to face you where his defenses are not gonna be. As well as if you take an angle on your opponent and the opponent wants to hit with power, they usually have to punch across themselves, which is really awkward. It takes a lot of power off the punch when you have to cross or punch yourself. There isn't that many people that can punch across themselves effectively with, you know, Roy Jones Jr. being one of the people that could do it. So that's the type of level of talent that you had to that you're looking at for people to punch across themselves. It also turns out that Gamboa exploded his Achilles tendon after this. And you can see him hobbling a lot, but what a fucking beast. He just goes back, back to his corner and they try to just tape up his foot the best that he can. But he still continues on that one leg. You know, if you're fighting exclusively on one leg, you can't set your weight to hit hard. And it's difficult to do things that are basic things like pivoting, which are, you know, techniques that boxers use to stay safe in boxing exchanges. Davis was also having a... <clears throat> Davis was doing a good job using the right hand throughout the fight, but a lot of the offense came from his left hand and using you know staple southpaw tactics like drawing the Draw opponent's jab to counter with a left straight and that was where most of the work was done from davis he was just drawing a lead from he would you know flick out his right he would flick out his own right jab to get gamboa to start throwing something back and always essentially counter with the left hand so going back to the mayweather connection davis was doing this amazing thing that you know his mentor mayweather does in boxing and in kickboxing and, you know, even MMA, one of the things that you should be doing, one of the things that high-level fighters do when they're hurt is look for the clinch. It's a way to put a pause on the action and create enough time for yourself to recover. And that's what you'll see a lot of boxers do, is that once they get rocked, they'll look for the clinch so they can tie up with their opponent, get those, you know, couple of seconds where the opponent can't hit you, and then the ref has to break you up and then restart the action to regain your footing. What Gamboa did, uh, so whenever Gamboa was looking for the clinch, Davis would frame off his neck with his lead hand, with so his right hand, and as his opponent pushed in, he'll release the frame and smoke them with the left hand, which is what happened in the eighth round. Gamboa was reaching for the clinch, but Davis would frame off his neck, have Gamboa really pushing into it, then he would launch his left, then he would launch his left hand and stun Gamboa, which had Gamboa looking even more desperate for the clinch just to get the frame on him again and and then pushing even harder and getting blasted by the left hand that knocked him down. This is something that Mayweather always did. He would always frame with his left hand, his lead hand, and then he would release it to blast people with his right hand. It's just an effective technique because it's just natural for your opponent to try to uh, push through the frame, especially when they're hurt, and that just adds force to your own power punch once you release the frame. Another thing that Davis did that was a Mayweather look was that every time his opponent Gamboa was ducking at the waist to get a clinch, Davis would drop his forearm across the back of Gamboa's neck and hang off it. Kind of like a sprawl, uh, you know, kind of like doing a sprawl in wrestling or in MMA. And this is amazing because, you know, it's tiring to be down there, bent over at the waist with your opponent's weight on your neck and you're trying to strain upwards. It's really tiring and it's just one of those little things that Mayweather and Davis do that I just really, really like to see. Another interesting look was that Davis was also looking for almost like a double collar tie whenever they would clinch, uh, a few occasions when they were clinched, which is very rare to see. 
in boxing because the opponent's hands are still free to hit you in the body. And unlike Muay Thai, where you can roll your hands over from the double clinch or double collar clinch and hit elbows, you can't do that in boxing, obviously. But Davis did a great job of grabbing the, the collar tie and then deflecting punches on his shoulder as Gamboa would try to sm- uh, punch out of the clinch. He would also post his head underneath Gamboa, you know, stretching him out to get some body shots in. And when he felt like it, he would shuck Gamboa up, uh, shuck uh, Gamboa by him and then hit out of the clinch. Um, now, a lot of the criticism for Davis came near the end of the round 8 and round 9, 10, 11, where we had Davis really slowing down and, and, and you, know, you know, he wasn't doing much for offense and even in his clinches where he was controlling basically every single clinch of the fight, he was making no effort to try to control the clinch anymore and he actually got clipped pretty hard by like a three or four punch combo by Gamboa in one of the clinches where, you know, luckily it didn't get him, get him knocked out, but it was a, it was him just you know taking the pedal off the gas in the clinch and getting smoked by three uh, really hard hands. And finally, the final sequence of the fight was when Davis was pairing his left straight with the left uppercut very nicely. Every time Gamboa would try to duck the straight, he was going straight into the left uppercut, and he was hurt off of that. And Davis again, amazing job. Every time Gamboa would try to reach for a clinch, he was the frame off the face with the right hand. Then he would punch out of it with his own left hand and go back to seeking left hand, left straight up, left uppercut combo. And that's where the fight ended. He just ended up catching Gamboa, ducking again with the left uppercut, and it was over. You know, a lot of people were critical of Davis's performance after this fight, but I thought Davis looked really good. I thought Gamboa looked tough as hell, exploding his Achilles. And you know, he did catch Davis a couple times with his own over, uh, his own right hook which is pretty awesome, but I didn't think it was a bad performance from Davis. I uh, thought both, both of them, you know, Gamboa really showed his toughness and Davis really showed uh, some interesting looks. So I can't wait until, uh, you know, I can't wait to see who Davis fights next. And I really like this guy, honestly. Now, there were other, uh, there were other, also a couple of events over the weekend that I didn't get to see, such as the PFL, uh, you know, finals. You know, we had Lance Palmer winning his featherweight division again by decision, you know, dominant decision. There was a rising event as well that I didn't get to watch. And also, if you don't know, Tenshin's Nasakawa, one of the best kickboxers in the world, Japanese kickboxers, also fought over the weekend or over the holidays. And I didn't didn't get to watch that one either. But with that being said, that's all the news and all the fights that I'd like to cover. Now we're gearing up for the return of Conor McGregor, which is happening next week, which, um, you know, has a lot, a lot of people excited. Probably the biggest, you know, one of the best ways to start 2020. The rest of the card isn't that amazing last time I checked, but the main event is something that we're all waiting to see. And with that being said, I'm going to be posting a little something something on next week for the Conor versus Cerrone fight. So check that out when it comes out. I'll just be looking at the tactical details of that fight and how those two fighters match up. And hopefully I'll be able to pull, make this podcast a regular thing. So thank you so much for listening. So everyone who's listening, that was my very first episode of the Body Shop Podcast. This one was pretty long because... You know, um, we went over a lot, a lot of things on this podcast and hopefully I can maybe clear up the audio, make it just make myself a little sound a little better, kind of flow with the podcast a little bit better. But if you listen to this on YouTube, please like, comment and subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other of those podcast uh, platforms, uh, please leave a review. It helps a lot with discoverability of the podcast so other people can find it. And I hope you have an amazing week and I'll be, you know, releasing some stuff on YouTube as we march our way toward the return of Conor McGregor when he fights Cowboy. Boy next, next week. Adios, everybody. Hope you have a good one.